Welcome to the Aquatic PD podcast, where we take you on an innovative journey developing aquatic professionals from beginners to experts. This podcast is sponsored by AquaticPD.com. Dive into the world of aquatic education and professional development with Aquatic PD, your go-to resource for enriching and empowering swimming instructors and aquatic professionals. Hello and welcome to the Aquatic PD Podcast. I'm your host, Katrina Van Eyck, and today we are diving deep into the captivating history of swimming. Water and our ability to swim have played a vital role in shaping our lives since the earliest days of human existence. As an aquatic professional, I believe it is crucial for us to recognise the profound impact water has had on our development as a species. By exploring the milestones and stories that have shaped the aquatic industry, we can gain a greater understanding of how water-based activities have evolved over time and how they continue to shape our future. Before we embark on this fascinating journey, I want to address a small disclaimer. I have done my very best to accurately pronounce the various place names and names of individuals throughout this episode. However, there is always a possibility of mispronunciation, and for that, I apologise. So, join me on this captivating journey through time and immerse yourself in the rich history of swimming. Together, we will explore the triumphs, challenges and innovations that have shaped the aquatic industry as we seek to deepen our understanding of this remarkable human endeavour. There's no way of pinpointing exactly when humans or our ape predecessors ventured into the water and began to swim, but a theory was proposed in 1960 by British biologist Sir Alistair Hardy, stating that he believed apes evolved into humans when they descended from the trees to live beside the sea. To keep their heads above water, our ancestors evolved an upright stance freeing their hands to make tools to crack open shellfish. Sir Hardy also stated that as we developed the ability to swim and were comfortable in the water, we began to lose our body hair and instead developed a thick layer of subconscious fat to keep warm in the water. Another theorist, Morgan, took Sir Hardy's theory even further, stating females led the way to the beach and she argued that women can survive immersion in cold water for longer, and the one athletic sport at which they outdo the males is long-distance swimming. Morgan envisioned a group of apes becoming trapped on an island in a flooded valley or by the sea. To survive, they became adept divers and had to develop more complex ways of breathing, 
which also aided the evolution of human speech. First recorded evidence of swimming was found on a cave wall near Wadi Sura in southwestern Egypt from 2500 BC. The painting displays people living 10,000 years ago swimming a version of breaststroke or doggy paddle and an Egyptian clay seal dated between 9000 BC and 4000 BC shows four people who are believed to be swimming a variant of freestyle. Depictions of swimmers have also been found from the Hittites, Minoans and other Middle Eastern civilizations. In the Tepantitla compound at Teotihuacan and in mosaics in Pompeii, the Indian palace Mohenjo-Daro from 2800 BC contains a swimming pool sized 12 metres by 7 metres and the Moan Palace of Konos in Crete also featured baths. Evidence continues to show swimming was practised in the Minoan Palace of Knossos in Crete also featured baths. Evidence continues to show swimming was practised in Assyrian, Greek and Roman civilizations. In Greece and Rome, swimming was a part of martial art training and elementary education for males. Some of the most influential writings of the ancient world reference swimming, including the Bible and Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. The ancient Greeks held swimming in high regard, though it was not an Olympic discipline in the ancient games. Swimming was seen as a prestigious ability and pointing out someone's inability to swim was seen as an insult. Plato, one of the most influential philosophers in history, once said that the inability to swim was a sign that a person lacked a proper education. The Romans were also keen swimmers, unsurprising given their tradition of bathing and Julius Caesar was noted as an excellent swimmer. Romans built swimming pools distinct from their baths. In the first century BC, the Roman Gaius Messinus is said to have built the first heated swimming pool. In the Orient, swimming dates back to at least the first BC, and evidence suggests that Japan held swimming races more than 2,000 years ago potentially making the Japanese the first people to swim competitively on a widespread basis. Emperor Go Yusei of Japan stated in 1603 that school children should learn to swim and that schools should also race against each other. It isn't clear when these races became commonplace in Japan, but records from 1810 show that school races had begun by this time. In Europe, the tradition of swimming largely faded when the Roman Empire collapsed in the 5th century. Swimming existed largely as an instructive survival instinct rather than something done for recreation or competition. Some authorities believe the fade in swimming was caused by a fear that swimming spread infection and caused epidemics, and others believe that its popularity faded due to society becoming more conservative in moral values like dress and how much skin was on show. There is some evidence of swimming at seashore resorts 
of Great Britain in the late 17th century, evidently in conjunction with water therapy. Water therapy at the time was used for the treatment of mental illnesses. Hot water therapy was used to treat insomnia, suicidal behaviours and assaultive behaviours. Cold water therapy was used to treat manic depressive psychosis and excitement and increased motor activity. Not until the late 19th century, however, did the popularity of swimming as both recreational and sport begin. This is believed to have changed when Queen Anne visited the Roman baths in the city of Bath in 1615, saying that had improved her health. George III was known to bathe in the sea in the 1780s and was an advocate for swimming. The beach was not always seen as the most relaxing place to be because of the cold water, hot weather in summer, and the dismal weather for all other seasons. The sand, which got everywhere, and most importantly, this prospect of drowning. By the late 18th century, though, vacations at the beach were becoming a cultural phenomenon. In Europe, during the 1600s and 1700s, artists began to paint pictures of the seaside and poets wrote verses about its tranquility, which sparked people's interest and many journeyed to the seaside to view these landscapes in person. Around this time, doctors began prescribing vacations to the seaside to treat such conditions as melancholy and depression. A Dr Burton would write prescriptions for his patients which detailed how long they were to stay, how often they were to visit and under what conditions they were to bathe. During these trips, British women would rely on bathing attendants who would help them with the correct timing and method of bathing, including which part of their body would make contact with the waves. These bathing attendants would plunge the female participants into the water just as the waves broke, making sure to hold their heads down so to increase the impression of suffocation. It was believed these cold baths would toughen up patients, including young girls who were thought to be dangerously pale. At the same time these vacations to the seaside were becoming popular, the air in British cities was becoming grungier and more polluted by many factories being built due to the Industrial Revolution. And Anton Lavoisier's discovery of oxygen in 1778 led to many theories about the health benefits of sea air. The theories claimed that the sea air was more oxygenated and pure. The industrial age went hand in hand with the development of tourism. The increased amount of money and transport methods gave people the desire and ability to travel to quieter parts of the country. Visits to the seaside became a competitive activity amongst Britain's upper classes and the habit quickly spread down the social ladder. When new railways leading to the seaside towns made the trips more affordable. By the early 19th century, seaside resorts were springing up in Normandy, southwestern France, northern Germany, and Scandinavia. The idea of the seaside resorts then spread to America, covering the New England coast, and then gradually down the mid Atlantic and the south. In 1538, Nicholas Winman, a Swiss-German professor of languages, wrote the earliest known complete book about swimming, titled The Swimmer or a Dialogue on the Art of Swimming. His purpose was to reduce the dangers of drowning. The book contained a good methodological approach to learning breaststroke and mentioned swimming age 
such as air-filled cow bladders, reed bundles and cork belts. In 1587, Everard Digby also wrote a swimming book, claiming that humans could swim better than fish. His short treatise, Neati de Nanti, was written in Latin and contained over 40 woodcut illustrations depicting various methods of swimming, including the breaststroke, backstroke and crawl. Digby regarded the breaststroke as the most useful form of swimming. In 1595, Christopher Middleton wrote a short introduction to Learn to Swim that was the first published guide recording drawings and examples of different swimming styles. In 1696, the French author Melchix Thézenot wrote The Art of Swimming, describing a breaststroke very similar to modern breaststroke. This book was translated into English and became the standard reference of swimming for many years to come. In 1793, Gutsmus from Germany wrote Gymnastics für die Jugend, or Exercise for Youth, which included a significant portion about swimming. In 1794, Canonicus Oronzo, Demonati of Italy, wrote a two-volume book about swimming, including floating practices as a prerequisite for swimming studies. Gutmus wrote another book in 1798, Small Study Book of the Art of Swimming for Self-Study, recommending the use of a fishing rod device to aid in the learning of swimming. His book described a three-step approach to learning to swim that is still used today. First, get the student used to the water. Second, practice the swimming movements out of the water. And third, practice the swimming movements in the water. He believed that swimming is an essential part of every education. Gutsmuls was a teacher and believed physical education was important to all children. By the 1820s, swimming had largely reverted to its former status of being a pursuit of the elite. In time, this spread throughout society's other classes to the point that swimming became perceived as an essential skill. Taught in schools across Europe and the rest of the world, around this time, the style of swimsuits changed and became smaller and more tightly fitted, which made it more affordable and accessible for all classes to swim. Racing became increasingly popular. Swimming, which had not factored into the ancient Olympic Games, became one of the cornerstones of the modern Olympics. In addition to racing, there are artistic forms of swimming that displayed aquatic grace and agility, as well as diving and team sports such as water polo. The oldest evidence of diving is from an ancient Greek tomb when cliff and rock diving was popular. In the 18th and 19th century, German gymnasts practiced tumbling and flipping off bridges into rivers and lakes, and Swedish gymnasts built wooden scaffolding over lakes. The first swimming organisation was formed in England in 1837, and at the time London had six indoor pools with diving boards, and with the introduction of indoor pools, competitive swimming began to rise in popularity again. Nine years later, the first swimming championships was held in Australia and swimmers competed in a 440-yard or 400-metre race 
which has been held in Australia every year since then. The current version of freestyle debuted in 1844 at a swim meet in London after being pioneered in Australia. Synchronised swimming first originated at the turn of the 20th century and was known as water ballet. The first clubs dedicated to synchronised swimming were opened around 1891 and the first competition took place in Berlin, Germany. An Australian swimmer, Annette Kellerman, performed in a glass tank at the New York Hippodrome in 1907, becoming known as the underwater ballerina. Synchronised swimming was recognised as an official sport in 1941 and became an official Olympics Games sport at the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games after an American synchronised swimming team demonstrated the sport at the Roman Olympic Games in 1960. The sport of water polo began around the 19th century and this early form bared little resemblance to the modern version of the game. It is believed that water polo was developed as an adaption of polo which is normally played on horseback. The sport of water polo originated in England where it was played at the beachside resorts. The modern version of water polo was played in the United States in 1888 which looked more like an American football game in the water. By the late 1890s, the sport was very popular and played in places like Madison Square Gardens, attracting crowds of 14,000 spectators in big national championship games. In 1870, the London Swimming Club formulated rules around the sport and games resembled the game of rugby, with underwater wrestling during the game, leaving some players barely conscious. The rules were then changed in the 1880s to shift the game's focus to skill over force. Nets were introduced for scoring and players were not allowed to tackle opponents who did not have possession of the ball. These early forms were played in lakes and rivers. The violence in the sport was the game's main attraction to spectators. This action helped water polo become the first team sport included in the Olympics in 1900. Interestingly, women's water polo was the last Olympic team sport to be added to the Olympics in 2000. The earliest known swim school programs were in Great Britain in the 19th century, both for sport and for life-saving. These programs were copied in the rest of Europe and in the United States, swimming instruction for life-saving purposes began under the auspice of the American Red Cross in 1916. In 1894, the first life-saving clubs were formed in Sydney in response to drownings at the local Sydney beaches. And in 1907, Surf Life-Saving Australia was founded. When the laws relaxed and daylight swimming was allowed at Australian beaches, more lifeguards were employed to protect the beaches. Swimming lessons were then conducted by various branches of the armed forces during both world wars and was very effective in promoting swimming. Courses taught by community organisations and schools extended to infants, and this is where we find our modern-day form of swimming and the base of current swimming lessons and swim school programs. In the 1960s, infant swimming grew in popularity. A Russian obstetrician developed the concept of in-water birthing 
and believed that babies born in water births were born with well-developed structure and were smarter. This developed interest in infant swimming and in the 20th century, a family in the US founded the first infant swimming training program. Japan also set up an infant swimming program and conducted infant swimming competitions regularly. They believe swimming promoted physical and neuropsychological development in infants. Swimming aids have been used throughout the history of swimming to help people achieve their goal to swim with ease. The first swimming aids were air-filled cow bladders, reed bundles and cork belts. Life jackets were made from animal skins, hollowed sealed fruit, blocks of buoyant wood and cork. In 1765, Dr. John Wilkinson patented a cork life jacket and life jackets developed from there with floating substances like kapok and foam and then to the current form of life jackets which are inflatable. The first pair of goggles were made from polished tortoise shells and were used by pearl divers in the 14th century. Glasses was then also incorporated into wooden or bamboo goggles in the 18th century. Forms of goggles which looked like motorcycle goggles were used by swimmers completing the English Channel swims. The modern form of goggles were designed in 1969. The first pair of flippers were invented by Benjamin Franklin in 1717 when he was 11 years old and were used like modern day paddles on the swimmer's hands. He then adjusted the design so they could be attached to the swimmer's feet. Swimming is great for your health. While swimming, your body releases endorphins, which relieve stress and depression, shrinking sadness and negative emotions. Swimming builds self-esteem, rejuvenates the body and refreshes the mind through meditative processes. Swimming also strengthens your muscles, regulates your cardiovascular system and helps maintain a healthy weight. In young people, it improves cognition, motor abilities, arithmetic calculation, linguistic development and spatial perception. Doctor of Biology Wallace Day Nichols conducted a group discussion with several high-profile people of different industries and found that all forms of water, including simple fountains, considerably influence the mind. Other scientific professionals like biologist and naturalist Edward O. Wilson believe that there is an intuitive link between nature and humanity and humans are instinctively connected with nature and water on a physical cognitive and emotional level. Over many years, ancient civilizations have worshipped bodies of water as gods or beings of faith which hold the spirits of people past and the spirits of nature. It is believed that due to water being able to reflect the scenery around it, the clear waters become a muse and an unlimited source of inspiration, offering creative reverie where multiple possibilities can be found. Since the first apes entered the water, the art of swimming has changed, but the water still carries the majestic power to heal, feed and empower people to live a healthier and happier lifestyle. This power will continue to touch us as humans for as long as we inhabit the earth. And there you have it, the fascinating history of swimming. 
from our ape ancestors evolving alongside the sea to the ancient civilizations recognizing its importance. Swimming has played a significant role in human development. We explore the depictions of swimmers found in cave paintings, clay seals and mosaics, showcasing its premises in various cultures. As we travelled through time, we discovered the resurgence of swimming as a recreational activity during the 17th and 18th centuries. Vacations to the seaside became a popular trend, driven by the desire for relaxation and the belief in the health benefits of sea air. With the development of railways, these trips became accessible to a wider audience, leading to the rise of seaside resorts around the world. The evolution of swimming techniques and the introduction of swimming aids, such as goggles and flippers, further transformed the sport. From its exclusion in the ancient Olympic Games to becoming a cornerstone of the modern Olympics, swimming has evolved into a competitive and artistic pursuit. Synchronised swimming, diving and water polo have captivated audience with their grace and agility and strategic gameplay. Swimming education and life-saving programs have also played a vital role in promoting water safety and ensuring the well-being of individuals in and around the water. Swimming lessons originated from the armed forces during world wars, expanding to schools and community organisations, forming the foundation of modern swimming lessons and swim school programs. We discovered the health benefits of swimming, both for physical and mental well-being, from the release of endorphins to the strengthening of muscles and the cardiovascular system. Swimming offers a holistic approach to health. The meditative nature of swimming and its connection to nature have been recognised by scientists, further emphasising its positive impact on our minds and spirits. Throughout history, water has been revered as a source of inspiration and a symbol of spirituality, from worshipping bodies of water to finding creative revere in their reflective surfaces. Humans have recognised the profound influence that water holds over us. As we conclude this episode, it is clear that swimming has shaped our past and continues to shape our present and future. Whether for recreation, competition or simply the joy of being in the water, swimming remains an integral part of our lives. So let us embrace the power of water and all the possibilities it offers us as we dive into a healthier and happier lifestyle. In our upcoming episodes, we will embark on a series that takes you on a journey from being a beginner swim teacher to becoming a seasoned expert in your field. We will start by exploring the entry swim teaching course, specifically focusing on the Swim Australia swim teacher course. We will delve into what you can expect during this course, including the essential skills and knowledge that make a great swim teacher. In the following episodes, we will move on to discussing the Swim Australia extension courses that are available to further expand your expertise and capabilities. 
These extension courses are designed to provide you with a comprehensive platform that goes beyond the basics, offering valuable information, inspiration and a deeper understanding of the numerous opportunities that the aquatic industry holds for swim teachers. By participating in these courses, you will gain the tools and insights you need to thrive in your role and make a meaningful impact on your swimmers' journeys. Join us as we navigate through the world of swim teaching, uncovering the essential qualities and techniques that set apart exceptional swim teachers. Whether you're just starting your journey or looking to enhance your existing skills, this series will equip you with the knowledge and expertise to excel in your role and create a positive and enriching experience for your swimmers. Get ready to dive in and join us on this exciting and transformative adventure. We hope you thoroughly enjoyed this episode and we encourage you to reach out to us with any questions or comments you may have. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening.